Good morning. You're so quiet, I didn't know you were here. Maybe you're not. We're glad you're here, though, to worship with us. And uh, we trust you enjoy our time with the Lord this morning. If it's your first time with us, our privilege to have you here. We ask that uh, you let us give you a packet of information about our church. Pastor Ed's going to be coming up with the center aisle, so you have to raise your hand so he sees you. In that packet, there's a card you need to take out and put in the offering plate later so we can acknowledge a visit by letter. So uh, when he gets next to you, make sure you get that information. Uh, again, we just ask you get familiar with the new format of the bulletin. And uh, you'll notice with the explanation of the new format, it tells you how to get more extended explanation of the changes that we gave last week. We didn't put them all in this week, but you can go to the church website and access those changes and find out what some of the things we did and why. If you're interested in being baptized or you know somebody who is, uh, we are having baptism the morning of January 31st. So please contact or have them contact one of the pastors for more information. Ladies, please note the sign-up information for the Snowflake Cafe coming up on February 13th. If you want one of the flyers at each of the doors as you go out, you'll see flyers for the Snowflake Cafe that you can take that as information. Or down the hallway near the women's ministry table, you can get more information there. Uh, Also, we're looking for biblical questions that you may want to be answered in a Sunday night teaching series starting Sunday night, January 31st. So you have some biblical questions you would like To have answered, please submit those to Pastor Paul, and uh, his email address is on the back of the bulletin this morning. Please don't forget reports for the annual congregational meeting are due in the church office by January 24th, so if you have to put a report in, they need those no later than the 24th, so we can have those ready for the congregational meeting. And then in case you missed it, you need to pray for the family of Jack Errol. He went home to be with the Lord this past Monday, and his service was Friday, so pray for Hannah and the family throughout this time. Let's pray this morning. Lord, it's our privilege to be here. And what a great thing you put us in a country where we can worship you wherever we want and according to your word, however we want. And so this morning we pray you would help us to be true worshipers, those who worship in spirit and in truth, that you'd help us to kind of keep our mind off other things that we could be thinking about, And through the music and the word and the prayers, be able to focus on you and how we need to obey you. And uh, we want to bless and honor and glorify you this morning, but we also want to be blessed by your spirit and your word, and we pray you would do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night as I was walking out of Giant, I overheard a man bemoaning the fact that things hadn't gone well, so he was hoping there was a change. And he said, if there's a God or gods or if there's karma or whatever, you know, that kind of spiritual stuff, it's not been going too well for me, but I'm thinking maybe it's going to change, so I'm going to buy a lottery ticket. And I thought to myself, it's unfortunate, and this is not uncommon in our world, that the identity of God is pretty vague in most people's mind. If there is a God, if there are gods, or if there's karma or whatever, we have the privilege of knowing and also of worshiping a God who is three in one, a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Son came to earth, and I thought it would be good for us this morning to begin our service by singing, Praise Ye the Triune God. 264, let's stand and sing about our God, the true God, the one God that we know as Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you. 
If God's our Father and we're His children, we're brothers and sisters, would you greet each other and tell them you love them? You're glad they're here. Find your hymnal again and turn to 13. 13. I'm going to be reading a psalm in just a moment that blesses the Lord for what all the good things He is to us. Let's sing that to Him. 13, you can stand with me again. And uh, just watch me, watch the repeats, and we'll start and end together, I think. be seated, and we're going to read responsively Psalm 16. I'll read the lighter or darker, I guess, whatever, print in italics, and you read the bold white print. And think about all that God is to us as our Lord and our Father. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I bless the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. 
You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I trust you've decided to follow Jesus. Let's bow in a word of prayer together. 
Father, we want to thank you for your goodness. We want to thank you, Lord, for your love and your care. Father, we want to thank you for welcoming welcoming us into your presence, the opportunity we have to pray to you and come before your throne. With that, Father, we want to thank you as you have accepted us amidst our sins, our hypocritical lives, that we strike out to others, that we take you for granted. You're always there to forgive and to reach out and accept us with forgiveness that's total and everlasting. So, Father, we thank you in Christ's name. And, Father, we want to thank you for our brothers and sisters of faith right here. We pray that you would be with those who have experienced the loss of loved ones recently, as we've already mentioned, Jack Arrow's family, for Hannah. We also pray for Peggy Charles' family, as she went home to be with you yesterday. Thank you, Lord, for your your work within their lives, and you're taking them home. We pray for those who have shared your word today, the Sunday school teachers, for Pastor Kevin, as he shares this morning, for Bill Williamson, as he shares tonight. Father, we would pray that you would touch our hearts through their words. You would strengthen our lives because of what we what we learn and what we apply. And Father, we want to pray for our college students as they prepare to return to school. We pray for the high school students, the junior high, as they prepare within the within the time within the youth group to learn how to live within this world as as followers of you. And touch them, encourage them. We pray for the basketball outreach that Mickey Donahue is a part of. We pray for those who, as they come, as they listen to the gospel, we ask that they would respond, get to know you, understand who you are, your love, your care, and your forgiveness. We pray for the women's ministry and their leaders, for the Snowflake Cafe that will become up in February. pray you would use that in their lives and the Bible studies that are taught to train them in, in their growth with you. Thank you for the men's ministry and those who are involved in the Bible studies on Tuesday as well as on Saturday. Bless them, encourage them in their walk with you and their fellowship with one another. We pray for a congregational meeting that will be coming in February on the 10th. Lord, as we prepare for that, guide our hearts and our thoughts. We pray for those who will be taking on new offices and new positions in the church. For the other leaders that are in our church, specifically of Chuck Young, who's our leader of the week. And as he works with the Christian Ed Committee, give him wisdom and discernment as he makes decisions and as he guides that program. We pray for our community. Father, I pray for the seats that are here that are empty, that you would fill them with people who are hungry and thirsty for your word and have desire to understand you more. Give us a, give us a sensitivity for those in our community who are in that perspective. We pray for our world. Father, our world needs help and needs peace. We would ask, Lord, as we, uh, as we uh, elect leaders this coming year, that you would guide our thoughts, guide our decisions, and that you would, you would guide the leaders we have right now, not only the United States but the other countries around the world, to have a perspective that is yours, an understanding of care, your love, and the peace you, you want to provide. We pray for our missionaries, Bill and Janet Grafson, as they work to provide open forums for people who are just questioning about what it is to know God. And as they come into those, into those forums and have a desire to learn more about you and start and become a part of a Bible study, Lord, we would ask again that they would find you in your word, understand your forgiveness, understand your love. 
And Father, we would just pray that you'd be with us. Give us a cheerful heart as we give back to you a portion of what you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Kids here that want to go to kids' worship, now's your chance. Today, if you follow somebody, you follow them on Twitter, 
or you follow them on Facebook, it means you just kind of watch what they're doing and kind of keep track of them. But in Jesus' day, when somebody followed a teacher, they actually walked around with them and uh, followed in their footsteps. And that image is kind of a picture that has been used to create the text for the next song we're going to sing, Footsteps of Jesus 470, not just watching what he's been doing lately and hearing what he's been saying, but actually going there with him and doing those things. Let's sing together, all four stanzas. Stand with me, 470, Footsteps of Jesus. Please turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. It's not the only place we'll be this morning, but we'll start there. If I ask everybody here this morning what you are, I'd probably get all sorts of different answers, wouldn't I? Say what you are, somebody would say, I'm a wife, or I'm a husband, or I'm a mother, or I'm a father. 
Some would say, I'm a son, I'm a daughter. You might give other words. You may say, I'm a businessman, I'm a homemaker, I'm a retiree, I'm a student. All sorts of names you could give, right? Question is, how do I know you're really that? Well, there's only one way. A phrase to remember, we've seen it before. What you really are determines what you do. If I look at what you do, I can probably tell if you actually are what you say you are, right? In the past year, when I've been speaking, and some of you hoped I was done with this, I'm not. We've reminded ourselves that if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, the word most used to describe what we are is disciples. You don't become a disciple. If you accept Christ, you are a disciple. And so at times when I've been speaking, we've been looking at that topic to figure out what is a disciple because we want to make sure we're being what we really are. Because what we are should determine what we do. And so we're looking at discipleship. And part of our perception of what a disciple is starts with what the word itself just means. The word itself just means learner or student. That's if you're a disciple. That's just what the word itself means. But we know in the New Testament that was expanded far beyond that. You're here in Matthew 28. In verses 18 to 20, we know in verse 16, the 11 disciples come to Jesus. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus here talking to his disciples, and it's pretty clear he thinks of them as more than just students, doesn't he? There's more to it than that. Now I know in the first century, in Jesus' day, In Israel, students would flock to various teachers, to rabbis, because they wanted to learn from certain guys. And if they got accepted by that rabbi, what they would do is what we see the disciples do during the Gospels. They would literally follow the guy around, listening to him. But more than that, because they would say, this is our teacher, they would also confess that teacher as their authority. That's who they identified with. Whatever the rabbi told them is to do is what they would do. In fact, a lot of cases, the rabbis would kind of give tests to the students to see if they really would do what he said. And that's what we want to talk about this morning, this idea of who's our authority if we're disciples. Now we're going to start with this phrase. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord or that Jesus has authority? You notice here in chapter chapter 28, verse 18, what does Jesus say? I'm the one who is in command. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus has all authority. Jesus is Lord. Now if I use the word Lord... And say that word, what are some other words come to your mind? Synonyms that come to your mind that when you hear the word Lord, you think of other words. What are some of them? And you have to use your outdoor voice. It's okay. You can do that in here. What are some other words that come to mind? 
Master, somebody said. Okay, a phrase, bow down, or king. Other words that to you are the same as Lord. Okay. Sovereign. Well, you ran out fast. If you thought for a while, you'd start thinking of it, isn't it? The Lord is what? He's the master. He's the ruler. He's the sovereign. He's the owner. We had king. He's the chief. He's the commander. He's the leader. He's superior. He's predominant. He's preeminent. We could go on and on with this. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? This is what it means. He has all the authority over everyone and everything. Now we're told this in 1 Peter chapter 3. This is a New English translation. It says, But set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. What does that phrase mean? Set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. Does it mean I make him Lord? Does it mean I let him be Lord? And the answer to both those questions is no. Why? He already is Lord. No matter what I do or say or think, it does not change that fact. Over 650 times in the New Testament, Jesus is called Lord. Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts 10, as for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, and by the way, he is Lord of all. Romans 14, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. We know it's going to happen at the end. Philippians chapter 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is in command. He has all authority. He is the Lord. When I set him apart as Lord, the first thing I do is acknowledge that fact. He's Lord of all. But as a disciple, I can't stop there. Because to set him apart as Lord, I have to confess Jesus is my authority. Jesus is my Lord. Remember, that's what the disciples did in the first century. They would confess that rabbi was their authority. I'm going to tell you a statement some of you may not agree with. We are not disciples of Jesus if we don't confess his authority over us. Did you hear that statement? We are not disciples of Jesus if we don't confess his authority over us. You realize in the first century, not everybody that was an authority in Israel opposed Jesus? Here in John 12, look what it says. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They believed in him, but were they his disciples? The answer is no. They would not confess him as their authority. 
You know, we're told something similar in Romans 10, 9 and 10. Most of you have heard that verse, right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you cannot confess that Jesus is Lord, you are not his disciple. By the way, you're also not really saved. Now some of you are sitting there thinking, I don't remember doing that when I got saved. I don't remember confessing Jesus was Lord. I did Acts 16.31. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, right? Isn't it interesting that phrase that says, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would it say that? Because to be saved, I had to confess that what he said about my sin and how he said I had to be saved had to be followed. I had to acknowledge his authority in telling me how to be saved and how to get to heaven. Whether I said that phrase or not, if I truly accepted him as my Savior, I had to accept him as my Lord. Now, after that fact, whether you said that or not at salvation, the question is, what do you say now? Because it tells us in this verse, I have to both confess him as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Do you do those two things Now, because after you do that, it's expected that you demonstrate that he's your Lord. Remember what happens here in Luke chapter 5? Jesus is always standing around a lake or a sea or something. He's already speaking, and the people are pressing on to him, and he sees two boats there, so he decides, I'll get in one of the boat, and I'll teach from there. So he gets into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, and he asks him to put out a little way from the shore. Then Jesus sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and lower your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But at your word, some translations say, Master, because you say so, I will lower the nets. Because you're the Lord, you're the one in charge. I will do what you tell me to do. That's what's expected. You're here in Matthew 20, 18 to 20, right? Are there any commands that are part of this great commission? We say Jesus is our Lord. He's our authority. So what's he tell us to do? First he says, all authority is given to me, so go therefore. And you say, go? You mean I got to go to a foreign nation? No. But you got to go to somebody. Because the next thing is, you're, you're, we're commanded to go and make disciples. That's a command. The assumption there also is, I'm being a disciple, because I can't make a disciple if I don't understand what a disciple is. What's the third thing to say to do? Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And again, you're thinking, wait a minute, I don't baptize anybody. Correct, you may not, but do you bring them to be baptized? Do you tell them they should be baptized? And by the way, if you haven't obeyed that command to be baptized, how can you tell somebody else to be baptized? And the last thing he says is, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Again, the assumption is, I'm following all that he commanded me. Why? Because if I confess Jesus is my authority and all authority is given to him, I therefore am expected to follow what he says. Set Christ apart as Lord. I acknowledge first he is Lord of all, and then secondly I confess he is my Lord. 
Then what follows is what we read in Psalm 16. Go back to Psalm 16. What then should follow is that he should then come first. Because we're told in Colossians 1.18 that in everything he's supposed to have the preeminence. That he's supposed to come first in my life. In Psalm 16, David gives us some indicators that help us see, am I putting God first? Am I putting the Lord first in my life or not? Here's what David says in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You are exclusive. One translation says, you're my only source of well-being. We don't go to anybody else for what we really need. Remember, Jesus taught some hard lessons in John chapter 6, and all the disciples left him except for the 12. And Jesus asked them this. Jesus said to the 12, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're exclusive. Who else would we go to? You come first. Look at verse 7. If you are my Lord, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. If he comes first, he's my educator. He's the one I look to for instructions. He's my only guide. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. If he comes first, he's exalted. We put him up before any, everything and everyone else. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. He's essential. If he comes first, I know he's the only one who shows me how to really live, where the path of life is. Then the rest of verse 11, it says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Up in verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices. If he comes first, he enthuses me. I find my joy in him. By the way, you want to know if Jesus really comes first in your life? Figure out who or what you take the most pleasure in. That will tell you who comes first. That in everything, he is preeminent. I'm supposed to set him apart as Lord. What's that mean? It means I strive to bow to his lordship. Screen just went off on me, Howard. I strive to bow to his lordship in every area of my life. I acknowledge he's Lord. I confess him as my Lord. And after that, he then comes first. Now, that all sounds great, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound real spiritual? Just say yes. Now go back to Matthew 7. Matthew chapter 7. Now we're going to talk about what's the problem with disciples. Because we know this stuff. We even claim some of this stuff. We wouldn't argue Jesus is Lord, would we? I don't think anybody here would argue that. But Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? 
Why do you say I'm the one in charge and you don't do what I tell you to do? Can I let you in on a secret this morning? Anybody like secrets? This is really not a big secret, but it's somewhat of a secret. You realize we tend to think we're much more obedient than we really are? Did you get that? We all tend to think we're much more obedient than we really are. And we want to look at what do we do instead of obeying the rest of this morning. That's our problem. In a few weeks we'll come back and look more at what the remedy for that is. You're here in Matthew 7. Look at verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Whether you think so or not, these are some of the scariest verses in the Bible that I know. But what do we do instead of obeying? And some of you, what you do is, you're really not obeying your Lord, you're obeying a religion. You have a religion, not a relationship. You follow a list of rules. Or you do some things that you think, if I do these things, then I'll be okay. Then I'm show I'm a good person. Because here in verse 23, what does he say? I never knew you, which implied they also never knew him. There was no relationship between them. They weren't following his, obeying him. They were obeying what they thought they should obey, the religion they thought they should follow. You realize we've already looked at that in Romans 10, 9, and 10. There are some of you in here who say, I believe that Jesus died and rose again but you won't confess it openly to anybody. You've got a problem. It says you have to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Some of you here have said words. 20 years ago, I said words. Did I accept Jesus? Really? What do you believe in your heart, though? Both things have to be there. There's no magic words to say, and you got it Okay. Is everybody who says he's a Christian necessarily saved? How do I know that? What's he say here in verse 21? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why the New Testament so much emphasizes, check out your spiritual birth certificate. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Make sure there's actually something there, that you're actually in relationship with him. That you know him and he knows you. Because just because you say who he is doesn't mean you enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, what's he say in verse 22? On that day, many will say, and he'll say in verse 23, I never knew you. That's what's scary about this. So many people think they're okay because they've said words. But they've never believed in their heart. And what's the distinction? The distinction is the last phrase. You workers of lawlessness. How do I know that I have no relationship? There's no change in my life. I'm living the same way I've always lived. I'm just as lawless and sinful as I was, but I said some words one time. There's no indication I have any relationship with Jesus Christ. You have a problem. 
What you've substituted for obedience and for relationship is you've substituted religion, and that doesn't get you to heaven. So some of you, that's your main concern this morning. Will I confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord and do what he says to believe that he died for me and rose again and accept that? If you won't, then you apply in these verses. He'll say, I never knew you. But most of the rest of us don't have that problem. We have accepted him as Savior. He is our Lord. We are disciples. And yet we do some of the same things we still find in these verses, which means we tend to replace something for obedience. We have some things we substitute for obedience and then still think we're obedient. You got that? This is why Jesus told Israel, Mark 7, 6, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We're good at giving lip service to obedience, but not really obeying. So what do we do instead of obeying in these verses? Well, first what we do is we give approval to him. We show we approve. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And so, hey, I approve of him. I call him by name. I even say some spiritual things at times. I say, Lord, Lord. That's not necessarily obedience, is it? Just because I can say the right things doesn't mean I'm obedient to what he wants me to do. What's he tell the Pharisees in Matthew 23? He says, for they preach. You realize he said the Pharisees say the right things? They say the right things, but they don't practice it. That's why he condemns them. They approved of God's word, but they wouldn't practice God's word. So they weren't obedient. What's the second thing we substitute for obedience? Call appropriating. We use his name or spiritual terms at times, and then we think we're okay. Look at what they do here. These guys are really spiritual. Not everyone who says to me, not just Lord, what do they say? Lord, Lord, say it twice. I use his name twice. And in fact, verse 22, what do they do? I prophesy in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I do many mighty works in your name. I pray and I end my prayer with in Jesus' name. So therefore, I must be pretty obedient. You understand those are not magic words that you end your prayer with. Everybody understands that? What does it mean when I use Jesus' name, even in prayer? John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. When I use Jesus' name in prayer or anywhere else, it's for the purpose of Him being glorified. Is that your purpose in using the name? Or you just think, I use the name to look spiritual? And we're all good at looking spiritual, aren't we? And so we appropriate his name or we appropriate spiritual terms. And then we think, because I can use these terms, I must be obedient. We know in this passage, not true. Third thing we substitute for obedience is we think at times all we need to do is assist God with some things. If I occasionally assist God or occasionally do some spiritual things, I must be okay. So if I show up in church once in a while, I'm assisting in that way. That's all I need to do. 
if I serve once in a while, if somebody really has a need or the church really has a need, I'm then must be okay. I just need to assist God occasionally. Notice what they were doing here. Did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name? Look, God, we're giving you this assistance. By the way, what have they really been commanded to do? What's the great commandment? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your, with all your, and with all your, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's not what they're doing. They're focusing on, I'm doing prophecy and casting out demons. That's not what they were commanded to do. They're doing their own works. What's the fourth thing we do instead of obey? And we're all good at this next one. You got this? By the way, we're, all good. we're good at all these. Everybody understands that? We're good at applauding instead of obeying. It's not obedience to give God applause or appreciation. Now, don't send me emails and say he's against applause. Not against it. Even if I don't participate, I'm not against anybody else doing it. But you understand what we're all great at doing? Wasn't that a great service? Wasn't that a great lesson? Some of you learned, don't say to me, wasn't that a great sermon? Because you know what I'll probably say to you. Oh, really? What are you going to do with it? I'm not against giving God applause or appreciation, but you know what? We do that and we think, I've done all I need to do. I appreciated what God was doing. And that's not obedience. That's just appreciation. You realize here they say we're doing many mighty works in your name. Some translations say many wonderful works. Isn't it great God's doing all these wonderful things? Yeah, it is. How are you obeying so he's working through you? You understand how that works? Or here's the other thing we do. We do spiritual things and we think we're being obedient because somebody else gives us applause. Or somebody else appreciates what we did. Or we do it to get the appreciation. And I'll do it as long as they applaud me. Here, you realize they're doing many wonderful works. But they're doing the works. They're not saying God's doing the works. And if somebody gives me appreciation or applause, I think, well, I must have done that right. That's not necessarily true. You understand that? Because if I did it for the applause, did I do it right? Yeah, there's our problem, isn't it? So instead of obeying, we just applaud and then go our way. Look down at verse 26 of this chapter. He's going to say, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. The fifth thing we do is, instead of obey, we just acknowledge. We're good at acknowledging we heard hears and does not do them. Well, I heard what God said. In fact, if somebody asks me all these spiritual questions, I can give all the answers. So therefore, I must be okay because I can answer these questions. I heard what he said. Most of us know James one twenty two, right? Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. But that's what we do. We think we obeyed because... I sat there and listened to him for 40 minutes. That should be worth something, isn't it? I heard. 
And then a half hour later, somebody asks, what did they teach on in that class? And you're going, um... Is it enough that I just heard? Is that obedience? And so instead of obeying, we replace it with something that looks pretty good to us. Let's see an example of this. Go back to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 15. Some may be thinking, I'm not sure what you're really talking about, how this works. Well, let's see an example of it. 1 Samuel 15 has to do with King Saul. And again, this is an account should be familiar with a lot of you. But in 1 Samuel 15, the Lord gives Saul a command through Samuel. Verse 2 and 3 of chapter 15, here's what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That's the command that's given to Saul. At the end of the account, you get to verse 20. Saul's take on the whole situation will be this. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. You understand that? At the end, this is Saul's determination. In everything that went on, I note, there was, here was the command of God, I obeyed the voice of the Lord. Now, those of you who know the story, you know the real answer to that. Did he obey the voice of the Lord? And you're saying, well, then how can he think he did? By the way, the same question is, how can we think we do? What did he do in place of obeying? Did he approve of the commandment? Look at verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He says the right things. This was a commandment of the Lord. So I say the Lord, and I say it was his commandment. That's the right thing to say. I approved of the commandment. Notice in this verse, he also appropriates God's name back to Samuel. He sounds pretty spiritual, doesn't he? Blessed be you to the Lord. Boy, that sounds pretty spiritual. He uses the Lord's name. He must be doing something right here. He assisted God. Look at verse 15. Saul said, right after Samuel, remember the nice little sarcasm where Saul says, I obeyed the Lord, and Samuel says, how come I hear sheep and oxen? And Saul says this, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we devoted to destruction. Look at the end of verse 20. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Look, God, how we assisted. We did something that helps out because we allowed the people to bring animals for sacrifice. And by the way, I brought Agag to you. Oh, and by the way, we should get some applause for this. Because verse 21, the people took of the spoiled sheep and oxen the best of the things devoted to destruction. 
We didn't bring the cheap stuff. We didn't bring the inferior stuff. We brought the good stuff. That's worth some applause. This is the best stuff. And by the way, verse 30, maybe I didn't do it all right. But Saul says this, then he says to Samuel, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Guess what? I should get some applause for this. Maybe it wasn't completely right, but I need some honor anyway. He acknowledges that he heard what the commandment was, because in verse 7, he does some of it. He defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And in verse 20, he says this, And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. I heard what you said. I went on the mission, and now I'm back. I obeyed the voice of the Lord. That's Saul's take. Verse 10, what's God's take? I regret I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. How can you have that much difference between the two of you? Anyone wonder about that? How on the one hand can Saul say, I've done it all, and God says, no, you didn't. The same way we do it. We substitute some of this for obedience, and we think, I obeyed. And that brings the third thing we do. In place of obeying, we do what Saul does here. We rationalize. We justify how we did what we did, why we didn't do it all. And Samuel says this in verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. There is no substitute for obedience. But I'm going to ask you a tough question. Doesn't it look like Saul obeys here? Be honest. Don't give me the spiritual. I'm in church. I'm going to give the spiritual answer. Does it look like Saul obeys here? Be honest. Yes or no? No, your spiritual one is saying no. I'm sorry. Yes, it does. It looks like he's pretty much obeying. He may not have done it all, but he looks like he did pretty much most of it. Shouldn't partial obedience be worth something? And the answer to that is this, no. God says partial obedience to what you know I've told you to do is not obedience at all. In fact, verse 23 says what it is. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. You realize what he's calling partial obedience here. He's calling it rebellion, presumption, and rejecting the word of the Lord. That's a whole lot different than our definition is, isn't it? Because we would think, if I did as much as Saul did, I should be pretty good standing with God. 
Why? Because we rationalize that less than what God asked, if I just do a part of it, I obeyed. And God says, no, you didn't. Turn to Acts 10. Acts chapter 10. The fourth thing we do instead of obey is similar to rationalizing, but it's a little more than that. In fact, the fourth thing we do is, and you're going to say, what do you mean? We refuse. But we think we have a good reason for refusing. You got this? We think we just don't refuse God for the sake of refusing God. We have a good reason for it, so it's okay. Here you're at Acts 9. Here's Peter, verse 9, Acts 10, verse 9. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. These were unclean animals to the Jews. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Question number one, did Peter know who he's talking to? Yes or no? Yes. Because verse 14, what's he say? By no means, Lord. He knows who he's talking to, and evidently three times he tells the Lord, no way, I'm not doing it. But he thinks he has a good reason, so it must be okay, right? First, he's refusing because this is foreign to him. This doesn't match with his upbringing. This doesn't match with his standards with what he thinks Scripture teaches. Because you don't eat unclean things. Do you understand Peter was already taught about this by Jesus? Mark chapter 7. He says to his disciples, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and expelled? Thus he declared what? All foods clean. Peter had already been taught on this. It shouldn't have been foreign to him. But he heard and didn't obey. But he thinks, since this doesn't match with my upbringing it's okay for me to say no. Or secondly, he thinks God's being foolish in asking him to do this. This is a foolish thing to do, God. You don't ask me to eat food that is defiled, that is unclean. Question, does God ask us to do foolish things all the time? You shake your head, yes. There are things in Scripture that to us look like foolish things for God to do. And we convince ourselves if we think they're foolish, then therefore I don't have to do them. It's interesting. We think we know better than God how to apply His Word. That if I determine it's kind of foolish, I don't have to do it. You think there was some fear here on His part? 
Some fear of change, some fear of something that he'd never done? And the answer is, I think there definitely would be. And so if I'm afraid to do something that God asked me to do, it's okay for me to say no, right? Isn't it interesting? We convince ourselves of that. I've never done this before. So therefore, if I say no, it's okay. No, it's not. There's no doubt here that he is fixed in his mind because this happens three times. He is obstinately going to hold on to the fact that he is not going to consider doing this. Can I remind you of something we all do? This is a problem we all have. It's interesting when we're studying scripture or somebody's teaching scripture or preaching scripture and the Holy Spirit takes it and nails us with something in our lives. The first reaction is always negative. Have you figured that out? That as soon as you think, "Uh uh-oh, that applies to me, your second thought is, no, it doesn't. Or I don't have to do that. That's what somebody else, or this was only for the Jews. I, I don't have to do that one. And eventually that becomes, I'm just not doing it. And the more you keep responding that way and keep the negative going, you'll eventually just stay so fixed, you'll change nothing the way God wants you to. And that's what we do. And then we think, it's okay. I've just decided I don't have to do this. What's the main reason he refused? And this is not a good reason. The main reason he refused, he forgot who was in charge. Because verse 15 says, And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, don't call common. What God calls clean, what God commands, what God tells you to do, you don't say, eh, that's ordinary. I don't have to do that anymore. No, you're not in charge. He's in charge. And we forget that. We think, I can refuse anything I want. Here's our question this morning we have to ask ourselves. Are we disciples? What we really are determines what we do and who we obey. Did you get that? And Jesus said this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And my question to you this morning is, as you've been sitting there, if you're listening to the Holy Spirit, what has he said to you that you are not obeying him the way you should? The question is, will you try to substitute one of the replacements for obedience or will you just determine you have to obey? Because he tells us to do this, but set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. That's what I have to do. Submit to his lordship, bow to his lordship. And notice the rest of the verse. You may say, what's this have to do with it? Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. What's that got to do with setting Christ apart as Lord? You realize if you set Christ apart as Lord and other people ask you, why do you live the way you do? Why do you think the way you think? Why do you respond the way you respond? Your answer is supposed to be this, because I am a disciple of my Lord Jesus Christ. That's my answer for the hope when they see I've set him apart as Lord. It's not just because I belong to church. Or uh, I thought it was a good thing to do. That should be the answer. 
He's my Lord, and I obey Him. As we close in prayer, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to talk to who I hope is your Lord. And whatever He's told you or asked you or remind you this morning, you need to respond to Him and tell Him what you're going to do. Or tell Him what you're not going to do. That's between you and Him. So you take a few moments. You talk to your Lord. Lord Jesus, we are amazed at your patience, at your grace, at your mercy, because we confess you as Lord, and then we keep not doing what you tell us to do. And I trust this morning that your spirit will not let any of us here get away with replacing it this morning with something else, or rationalizing or refusing and think we have a good reason not to do what you have been commanding us to do, that you would spur us on to be doers and not just hearers, that we wouldn't just walk out and be the same, but we would start demonstrating we are your disciples, you are our Lord. And we pray for this in the name of your Son, the one we want to get glory in our lives, Jesus Christ. Amen. We can give words to our response by singing 372, hymn 372, Living for Jesus. Would you stand and let's sing the first, the third, and the fourth stanzas, one, three, and four.
Lord Jesus, we pray to be obvious in our lives this week that we own no other master, but we set you apart as Lord of our lives. Amen.